namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, trying to make a distinction or trying to talk about uh, the two types of meditation that we find in uh, all forms of Buddhism, uh, samatha and vipassana. Samatha means peacefulness, quietening, vipassana means insight. And I think to get an angle of it, it's always good to go back to the Buddha's own personal experience and how it comes across to us through the scriptures. So <clears throat> here we have a uh, young man, he's probably in mid-twenties, and he's slowly becoming disillusioned with life. He's living the good life, uh, he belongs to a ruling family, Although uh, in later commentaries he's put up to this huge eastern potentate, it's just uh, a local boss, <laughs> a local uh, head of a tribe who actually has to pay tribute to the king of Kosala. So he's what you might call upper middle class, how about that? <laughs> and um, he has a, a, a wife and an ordinary family life, extended family life, lots of cousins, many of whom of course join him when he, um, when he starts the order. And of course the women join him eventually. And uh, just about the time his son is born, uh, from a sort of psychodynamic point of view, from our sort of Western psychology viewpoint, it's rather interesting that his own mother died when he was only a week old. And, uh, and that must have had some psychological effect on him, even though it was his mother's sister who became his stepmother. And somehow he uh, leaves just as his child is born. That's a rather interesting coincidence of facts, I'm sure. Freudians or Jungians might say something about that. <laughs> but one perhaps could say that this trauma, even in that young age, the loss of your mother, um, does create, I think, some imbalance in the psyche, which begins to manifest in him in his early 20s as what we would call an existential crisis, uh, leading to probably an identity crisis, who knows. And what brings it about is the realization, um, a sort of sudden uh, growing uh, realization that, you know, once youth has passed, once you come out of the, out of the fantasy of youth, where things like sickness, old age and death are very far away, one isn't concerned with these things anyway concerned with good living. But around about 25, there is a change of uh, view, there's, a, there's something happens within us, most of us anyway, where we realise that in fact, you know, youth is passing as we know it, and we're looking ahead to a glorious, hopeful uh, middle age. <laughs> uh, we, t we start taking things seriously, we tend to take out pensions, get married, Take a, you know, take a career anyway from the easiness of youth. So within that sort of context he comes to, he comes to realise that actually in the end there's just sickness, old age and death. And it's a sort of uh, crisis which builds up in him to such a degree that it, it makes him go, it makes him leave. But there's another side to it which also um, reinforces that 
search is that he's experienced, shall we say, what um, Blake would call um, the road of excess. I think think that's how he puts it. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. So at some point, when he's had all his parties and he's had a good time, he sees the vanity of it. He sees the other side of it, the emptiness of it. It's expressed in a visual sense that he wakes up at the end of a, a big, uh, you know, carousing, and just sees these dishevelled bodies and maybe the smell of sickness and who knows what, <laughs> and that sort of uh, gives him the other side of pleasure. You see, the downside of pleasure. Psychologically, remember, this indulgence brings about you know, the frustration when you can't get what you want, the grief when you lose what you've got. And the anxiety when you've got what you've got and you're afraid to lose it. So all that psychology is in there, you see. And we can say that he was waking up to that fact that you know, the life he was leading had this deeper emptiness to it. Hmm? One could say that he hadn't found any real purpose in the, in the family life that he was leading, in the sort of... Um, career that was being offered to him as a kshatriya, a warrior caste, a ruler. And so uh, there comes this crisis point, you see. see we, we know about crisis, don't we? A financial crisis. So he's, <laughs> he's having a psychological crisis. And so he leaves. Now he wouldn't have left if he didn't have somewhere to go. And the thing was that just as in the 70s there was a great movement of hippies searching for love. <laughs> In those days, there was quite a movement of people searching for the answer of, to life. It, um, the, you know, in, in the Hindu, what we call Hinduism, the Vedas, there was this slow-growing uh, new literature, the Upanishads, uh, which sort of manifests this questioning of the age. It was also an age of a, of a change in the culture, movement away from pastoral societies dotted here and there with local rulers and things like that to a city-based civilization, in which there grew a merchant class which had not been there before, a rich merchant class that began to have power, and kingship, which the Buddha didn't particularly like. He preferred the more democratic meetings of the pastoral societies. So there's ferment, you know, there's change happening in society, not perhaps as vicious as, as we've experienced, but definitely some, some, some dislocation going on. Hmm? And uh, there were these groups of men, very rare for women to do it because of the dangers involved, uh, and of course the, the sexism involved too, who went out into the forests and uh, tried to find the meaning of life that was there. That was their, their job. And uh, one of the strains of understanding which empowered them was the, uh, uh, the belief in rebirth, the belief in reincarnation. And there were many sort of answers to it, but it was the horror of having to be reborn again into this life. Remember, it's, these times are a bit harder you know, like there's no videos, there's no DVDs, there's no cars. I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of dog work, you know, like you're out in the field digging and you come back, what do you do, you know? Like, where are we going to go tonight, you know? <laughs> the only, the only uh, entertainment, you might say, with the occasional, the big entertainment, with the occasional military parades and, uh, believe it or not, the holy men who would turn up in their parks in their shrines, and everybody would go out on a full moon night and ask questions and they'd do some chanting and stuff like that. That was, in a sense, the fullness of their entertainment, I suppose, apart from the usual things, playing games. And the idea that one had to be reborn again and again and again and go through this horror because in those days, of course, sickness, old age and death wasn't something that happened in hospitals or shut away somewhere. The dead were taken to charnel ground. 
You could see the bodies rotting. When the wind changed, you knew where it was coming from. It was like, <laughs> like it was there, it was in the open, as you might still see in India. You see, when you go to the house, that's one of the great things about India. It doesn't, doesn't disguise these things. So this whole idea of having to come back to this <laughs> again. So one, one was looking for an escape. See, where was the escape? And uh, that was the atmosphere which the Buddha left home. You know? And I dare say that when he left, he didn't say, I'm off for good. So I said, well, I'm, I'm just nipping off for a little while and just checking this thing out, see if, it, uh, see if I can find an answer to my uh, deep sense of... Uh, my deep disturbance, you know. See, I remember when <coughs> I told my mother that I was going to become a monk, you see. She collapsed into this, such a deep weeping, coming from the sort of deepest part of her heart. Even I started crying. <laughs> and so, as I gave her a hug and said, Mum, I said, it's only for three years, and she stopped like that. <laughs> and of course, it was you have to put it in the context of Catholicism because priests are around. You can see a priest there. But if you become a monk, that's it. You, see, you, you cut your ties. You enter the monastery and nobody ever sees you again. I think they've softened up on that. Now. I think they can see people once a month or something. But in the old days, that was it. You left. Collapsed, you see. So I dare say there was a lot of uh, uh, gnashing of teeth. His, his parents wept. In later tales, they say how his parents wept at his leaving. His wife wept. His cut, everybody wept, you see. And I'm sure he said, well, I'm only going. I'll be back in a bit. <laughs> He's going to see what it's like. So <clears throat> he goes off and joins uh, these ascetics living in the forest. And uh, the people he goes to, the first two teachers, teach him what we now call the jhana, what we now call absorption meditations. And uh, when you practice this samatha, type of meditation you're creating a state of mind but the beauty of it is that although you begin with an outside object either you know, a candle flame, you all know that or a circle or a, an inner object like a mantra or an inner object like your breath it's still an object you're only using it to bring about a certain laser quality to the mind and I think you'll know that when the mind begins to concentrate bliss arises naturally it's just the quality of the mind as it concentrates sort of an energy in it and we experience it as a certain type of inner happiness and uh, the first teacher really took him right through what we now recognize as the uh, the jhanas, the rupa jhanas and the arupa jhanas. So now the rupa jhanas are those states that you get by deepening your concentration until, as it were, the mental state leaves the body, goes inward, as it were, and finds its own joy and then even leaves that to find a, a, a perfect peace. Okay? This is not the equanimity of the, of the uh, seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, they, they use the same word, you see. These words are used variously. It's the same word, but they have slightly different meanings. And then, leaving that, as it were, one enters into a, a, a stranger place where there's no object at all. So right up until that point, there's always an object, a light, uh, the feeling, a sense, there's something there. But when that disappears, and this uh, consciousness, as it were, for want of a better word, uh, is in, it flips into a different state, and there's nothing there. See? And those places are called infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness. And these relate... I'm, I'm talking now to people just a little bit who, who know the, the Dharma a bit uh, deeper. These relate to the four candors, you see. So when you're into that area of space of nothingness, it's out of that nothingness that the sankhara arises, the, the manifestations of mind. 
when you're into that space of consciousness, you're at the beginning of the vijnana process of consciousness, which manifests eventually as one of the as one of the aggregates. When you're in uh, the space, everywhere there's just space. You're at the subtle level of veda and a feeling. And when you're at neither perception nor not perception, that's the beginning level of perception. As it as that consciousness descends into the mind, you see, and finally coagulates into what we call physical body. So that process that a person might go through, it has its own insightfulness as you pass you know, through it. And uh, the Buddha took this um, with this teacher and became an adept, and the teacher said, please join me. And he said, no, he said, I, although I've done all this and you know they're very blissful states and all that but it's not it's not really answered my question as to is there an end to suffering now that's the core thing which I should have mentioned earlier the quest was is there an end to suffering and that you know eventually puts his whole teaching just in three words in the in the, in the texts dukkha dukkha wrote suffering and the end of suffering this dukkha of course is uh, has a very wide meaning. Here I've, I've translated it as suffering, dissatisfaction, sense of lack, uh, meaninglessness. You know, it, it's the whole gamut of human suffering. <laughs> from, from the smallest little disturbance to the deepest despair and horror. So he leaves that teacher and he finds another one who takes him just one step further in the these uh, Arupa jhanas, and even and there becomes an adept. Um, and again, he's asked to teach, but he says no. He leaves. You see, so although he's practiced these um, concentration meditations, although he's taken them to the fullest development, uh, recognized by his own teachers, um, there's just something lacking. There's something which has not been undermined, which is still causing him suffering, causing him some feeling of dissatisfaction. So now he tries uh, a different tack, which um, seemingly he gets from an elder um, teacher, a contemporary teacher, the, the Nagantha, the, uh, the leader of the Jains. Uh, now his understanding was that um, bad karma was accrued even when you didn't mean it. So you know that Jane monks go around with a whisk and make sure that there's no bugs that they're going to tread on accidentally. See, So their understanding is that even accidentally you still cause suffering and therefore there's going to be a karmic comeback. You see. And uh, the real problem lay and this runs right the way through really Indian literature in desire, Trishna, you know. So one had to live the absolute ascetic life, deny the body any pleasure because there was a danger. He did not make, he didn't seemingly make a distinction between pleasurable sensations and the attachment or desire that you have to them. So one had to, as it were, uh, undermine that whole process. And if you think about it, you know, pleasures come through the body, don't they? So you begin to re you begin to blame the body for your problems, and um, you fast. You know, you you sit in front of very hot fires. <laughs> you do all sorts of ascetic practices, which are meant to steel you against the pleasures of the body. You see. So he took this, again, he uh, seemingly took it to his own personal end, like he couldn't go any further with it, and uh, basically he just got thin. And he said he could hold his spine through his stomach. That's how thin he was. <laughs> and he hadn't, and again, he, he sort of wasn't, wasn't achieving anything. Like it is the question of not, this fundamental question about you know, suffering about uh, 
meaningfulness had not been answered and he's with five companions remember at this time they're, they're going for it helter skelter I mean they're really whipping themselves and <laughs> getting into it big time and so he leaves so now in the opening stanzas of his very first talk he says that the life devoted to sensual pleasure is base, ignoble, waste of time leading nowhere and the life devoted to self-mortification right, which is not renunciation but renunciation is not doing something to see your attachment self-mortification is based on self-punishment self-negation self in, that, in that sort of bad way yeah, rejection of life as it is in a way and that self-mortification was also just painful he said <laughs> and led nowhere at least the first one was pleasant and led nowhere but this was just painful and led nowhere but he doesn't he doesn't say that the jhanas that the other stuff that he'd learnt about developing the qualities of mind was a waste of time and that becomes part of his system but we can at least I can get a sense of his despair when he leaves his companions and what's he going to do? He can't go home because it would just go back into that emptiness, that bad emptiness. He's been to all these teachers. He's talked to a lot of people. And you can see from his teaching that he, he knows all the, all the local philosophies of the time and, and the psychologies of the time. They learned it. And he's, he's tried everything. And he's got nowhere to go. So I imagine that when he sat on that road along which Sujata came uh, he was in a state of real existential despair and thin and when Sujata comes along with her rice pudding or well rice cakes she takes pity on this man I mean you know in the scriptures they soup it up they, she's going to offer this to a god and sees the bodhisattva who is resplendent and believes that this is the god but actually he must be looking miserable. <laughs> he thought, she thought, well, maybe he needs it more than this God. And uh, we all know the salvific effect of rice pudding. I mean, it's enormous in its power. So having tasted it, he sort of feels better. And uh, around about that time, he has this memory of his father doing a plying ceremony. He's a child. And there's something about the way he, the, he remembers, there's something about the way he's looking at his father during the planning ceremony, which, uh, which offers him another way of seeking the end, uh, seeking the answer to his predicament. And that's why I've got these pictures, you see. The little baby at the back there on the board was on a poster, was on a, an advert in Birmingham Station. And uh, I came out of the train, I saw this. It was part of an advert. And I went home, came all the way back to Birmingham Station <laughs> to take that picture. I've probably broken some sort of publication rights. But, and I thought it was a fantastic. So make sure you have a look at that because uh, what it expresses is that uh, way of looking and the moment of seeing and the little girl in the other picture was given to me by uh, a friend in Dublin, Dennis. And this is a picture that brought into the um, Dublin Times, the Irish Times. And there was an opening of this, uh, uh, what do you call it, it's where they put trees and little animals. And nature, nature reserve, it's not right. <laughs> and you can see that she's reaching out to a plant to see what that is there. But the look on her face, if you look at it, has both an intense interest, but also a sense of trepidation, a sense of fear of the unknown. Like, if I see this, what will happen? So that comes first, and the baby face comes second. Yeah. So here's this child 
watching his father doing a praying ceremony and there is a tremendous interest in what his father is doing. And that interest draws him into a, an absorbed state. He's just looking. And you see it in children, don't you? You see it when their jaw drops and their eyes become fixated. Yeah? And you can't, you can't shake them out of it unless you give them a flip on the back of the head. <laughs> and that's it. That's the pure openness of that intuitive intelligence. Just receiving that's why uh, you know, I try to stress this quiet abiding because there you drop your preconceptions uh, you drop your ideas you drop your concept, you drop your history dropping your history and you lay yourself open okay? just, just observing, feeling, experiencing what's happening right now okay? so there was something in that looking which uh, raised again that uh, encouraged him to have another go and he was so certain that this would actually be the answer that um, he makes a determination doesn't he to sit under the tree and either die or find uh, you know find the answer to his to this existential problem of suffering uh, lucky for him and uh, lucky for us he does huh? six hours it seems There's an interesting moment which is uh, worth pondering. The great doubt arises. You've all, I'm sure you've seen that posture of the Buddha where he's putting his hand, touching the earth to ground himself. And it, it, Mara, the evil one, attacks him. See? And although it's putting pictures of all sorts of things attacking him, what it is, is the great doubt. It's known as the moment of great doubt. And the doubt is... Who are you? Who are you to try and work this out? You know, there's no single human being you know of. Nobody's ever worked out. Who are you? How you know? How how come you you've even started on this quest? And with it, there comes this uh, the temptation of going back into the ordinary life. And that's what Mara is. Later on in Buddhism, it's Mara's put across as sort of an evil, a bit like the Christian devil. You know, trying to kill you and do all sorts of bad things to you. But he's much more the tempter. And uh, the god Mara is actually uh, the chief of a, a most delightful heaven. Okay? So what he symbolizes is the attraction of the sensual life. And it's interesting that when he touches the earth and the, the earth goddess appears, you see, it's his perfection of generosity which makes him continue to sit. Now, what is generosity? Generosity is doing or doing something for somebody else. Okay? And I presume that what came to him at that moment was that this wasn't just for him. This was for humanity. It wasn't a selfish thing that he wanted to get out of suffering he was trying to save himself. It was in the greater context that this was the question. And it was for the benefit of others that I think gave him that strength to sit there and continue that investigation. I think this is my own interpretation, by the way. <laughs> I don't... The, uh, the commentaries just say... You know, it was the quality of perf the perfection of generosity that gave him the strength. So when he began to teach, he taught these two things in tandem. And the, the absorption states uh, were something that he really pushed, you see. And the thing about the mind is that if it's very concentrated, very open, very still, obviously it sees something. Obviously it's more capable of seeing something, rather than a mind that's scattered, unable to be gathered onto a single point. And one can develop that sort of uh, single-pointed single uh, mind uh, through various exercises, and you can do it, as it were, just by repetition, just by repetition. 
But remember that when you do it, when you do that, there's a, a tendency to be able to block, to stop the purification process, and that's what uh, the Buddha found. That when he was in these beautiful states, fine. But when he came out again, he was still the same old depressed Gautama. See? <laughs> it hadn't done anything to purify the heart. It had built another mindset, which, as an adept, he could enter any time. So therefore, you could always go to this place. When he felt a bit depressed, push it away, do your mantra, in you go, blissed out. But it never actually dealt with this problem. See? That's what he came back to. And it can't do, because these jhanic states are about developing the mind. Now, we see this, and this is the distinction between a charismatic who is not wise and somebody who is wise and somebody who is charismatic and wise. Somebody who is charismatic builds up this huge love, you see, and it can become a radiance. You can be attracted to it, you know. And then one day, you stand on their foot. <laughs> and they go berserk. So that's why the Buddha says, you can't tell how wise somebody is until you live with them for quite some time. And then you suddenly see these little defilements, these little odd bits of behavior come out. And you know that something has not been purified. But that doesn't mean to say that in that charismatic form, the person might not be doing a huge amount of good. But even that person may be confusing their charisma with wisdom. And the, the great enemy, the Buddha points out, of the leader are the followers. Because they keep telling you how wonderful you are. <laughs> the person who is fully liberated might not be charismatic at all. Might be quite an ordinary person. Even though the Buddha definitely had some charisma, there's a lovely moment in the scriptures where somebody, a monk, comes in, or it might have been a lay person, I can't remember, and comes into a group of monks and has to ask, you know, which one is the, the Bhagavan? See? So it's not as though he displayed this huge charisma, or it doesn't seem to have done. But then again, you can have somebody who is charismatic and who is fully liberated. Now what the jhana does, all these jhanas, is to produce charisma, it produ depending on what you practice. So if you practice love, that's the charisma you'll get. Hmm? In my travels in Thailand, I met about three or four, five people really, five monks, because you only get to see monks as a monk, you know, uh, who were all highly developed, and all of them were generally considered to be liberated. And they all had very different atmospheres around them. The, the, the two I remember most is Anajan Sim, who lived just up beyond Chiang Mai. And uh, there were three of us who were travelling together, uh, a couple of Americans. And when you sat in his presence, you were immediately drawn into his sense of peace. It was a tangible feeling. And it immediately affected you, and you sat in peace. Just like that. When I went to Ajahn Tate, who had this beautiful monastery up on the borders of uh, Laos, on the Mekong, um, I went to see him. It was just me at the time, I think. You were just enveloped with this very, very lovely, loving kindness. He might just have been feeling that at the time, I don't know, you know. But it was tangible. It was a real tangible feeling. And immediately softening, you know. Like immediately you, f you felt this open friendship. When he died, something like, I don't know, what they said, a couple of million people turned up for the funeral. You know, he was pretty famous. He's the one I quote, by the way. I, I've not, I've, I've said something else out there, but <coughs> when I, when I do a, a day of resolute resolution on the retreats, you see, 
Make it simple. Take it easy. Stay with the one who knows. That's Ajahn Make it simple. Take it easy. Stay with the one who knows. Now, when the uh, people began to join him as order members, bhikkhus and bhikkhuni, um, they were people who'd left the worldly life. So therefore, what were you going to do? What do you do all day? Well, you haven't got to go to work. What do you do? And you can't grow anything. See, you're not allowed to grow. You can't cook. You haven't got any money. You can't buy anything. You can't do any... You can't get into uh, retail therapy. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> See? You've got to do something. So uh, these exercises, the jhanic exercises, are specifically for those people who have time. You know? And if you find yourself you have time, and, and this is something you might want to practice. And uh, it's beneficial. It's, it's creating you know, beautiful states of mind. But... He was travelling once. This is later on in his teaching. Out towards Kamasadama, amongst the Kurus. It was a village of the Kurus. And the Kurus lived what we would now recognise as modern Delhi, that sort of area. He'd been there before. This is ordinary village people, you know, people who look after cows and, and, sh- and sheep. I don't know whether they have sheep. Maybe. <laughs> And, and the fields, they just, you know, like there's nothing technological. This is drawing water from the well, cutting wood, all that sort of stuff. And he'd been there before and he'd given them their teachings. He'd given them the teaching. And when he turns up again, he's, uh, he's quite uh, taken by how they're actually practicing the Dharma. He says, for a start, there's no well talk, gossip around the well. And everybody was doing things mindfully. And they were all practicing meditation. And he was so moved by this that he gave this talk, which is known as the Discourse on the Establishment or Foundation of Mindfulness, which is recognized as the jewel of the whole collection. Because here, he actually tells you how to become liberated. This is it. He puts it all together in one discourse. Hmm? And he says it to these ordinary people in Kamasadama. He doesn't give this talk to his monks or anybody. Now this for me is highly significant because normally speaking he's going on about the jhana and vipassana. You know, like the one leads to the other, etc., etc. And there are teachers who teach that now. Yeah? But this, you see, is directed to lay people who haven't got the time to sit there and get into these blissful states. Yeah, they've got to tend to family and all this sort of stuff. And it starts off by um, telling them clearly, and the word he uses is ekayanomago, which means the one-way proceeding path, or the path that proceeds in this single way. And the commentary normally puts that as opposed to the dvayana, the two-way path, which is the combination of the samatha practice with vipassana. Right? That's his first words, ekayana mago. And it's, di- and it's um, translated variously by authors depending on their particular viewpoint. So you'll see in Nyanaponika, in his really still the core book on meditation, the heart of Buddhist meditation, he, he says it's the only path. Well, that's a bit fundamentalist. <laughs> <laughs> then there's... Uh, uh, these people who are friends down in uh, in Devon who who translate Pali as a sort of hobby and they call it the sure path see but uh, but Bhikkhu Bodhi who's the who is the doyen the American monk who's the doyen of Buddhist studies uh, makes it quite clear that this ekayana means the one way path as opposed to the two way path which to me makes a lot of sense so this is the one-way path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for reaching the end of suffering and discontent, for finding the true way, for the realization of emancipation, 
namely the four applications of mindfulness. Not a bad translation, really. <laughs> so, when we practice vipassana, there has to be included in it a certain um, concentration content. And what the Buddha does is he uh, pulls out for us seven factors which developed lead to this natural insight process. And the first one is just this awareness. But it's right awareness. And right awareness always means the observation of the three characteristics. Because that's where the delusion lies. It's seeing the impermanence. It's seeing how we uh, indulge or resist what is happening, whether it's being pleasant or unpleasant and the quality of not-self. This not-self is not a philosophical statement. The Buddha doesn't say there is no self. It's a teaching tool in which everything you experience, you make clear to yourself, is an object you're aware of. So if you're aware of something, it cannot be that which is aware. If you think of how, as children, uh, we have begun to distinguish out of that mass of sensation the world out there, you know, object relationship, I think they call it. How out of this mass of sensations, you know, mother starts to loom, your first object. Something separate from you, separates out of the mass, until eventually you're quite clear that this is me and everything else is not me. All we're doing is taking that process inward and making the inner part of our experience as objective as this room is. So this room has a body, this wall, ceiling, and it has atmosphere, it has a mind, we say. So it is the same within us. As we begin to push out push away, objectify the inner world as we've done the outer world, that process is the process of detaching from it, undermining that relationship of it being me or mine. And that's why we feel this process of liberation. That's why the Buddha says, the taste of Nibbana is freedom. It's the liberation from that wrong connection with what we're experiencing. But this awareness has to be supported. And the split is between those qualities which are passive and those qualities which are active. So when we practice this quiet abiding, we are practicing those qualities which are passive, which for us are not highly developed in our society. It's the, the active qualities which are, are developed. And those passive qualities are calmness. Just to be calm. Not to, not to be excited all the time. You know, not to seek a sort of high level of energy. But to just bring ourselves to a real deep calmness. You see? And interestingly, that's linked with this interest. Because interest can get excited. If you're interested in something, you can, you can feel yourself getting all excited. But that excitement then becomes, that interest then becomes tainted with trying to achieve something, trying to see something. And once there's a trying to see something, that self is taking over the process. So to do, to see something at this level, one has to let go of the idea that I'm achieving it. There has to be this business of just having faith, a real confidence that there is within us, that which will make insight without us trying. See? And that's the abstraction, that's the taking away of this self which manifests as a sort of over-effort, a trying to see something. We won't relax and just let the eye look. 
being. So tomorrow when you're wandering around, or even, well, tonight, but tomorrow when you're wandering around uh, the paddock or the garden, or you go for a walk, so you just rest your eye on something and just watch the way the eye perceives. You don't have to try and perceive. Put a leaf in your hand, you know, or just, just look at a tree and just watch how the eye itself is perceiving. See? Stand back from that process and then you gain confidence. Oh, the eye perceives. I don't have to try and perceive. So it's the same with intelligence. If we get out of the way, see, the intelligence works naturally because that's the quality of intelligence. It understands. It perceives. It has insight. It doesn't think. This is the thing. Thought is, a, is another process. The insight is immediate. You either see it or you don't see it. Then there is this passive quality of a steadiness of attention. Hmm? Just a steadiness of attention. Concentration, focus. Just steadiness. Just keeping the attention steady. And that has to be coupled again with right effort. The effort is just to maintain the focus. Hmm? You put too much effort and you start getting restless. You start getting a shaking. You're putting too much effort into it. Too little effort and the concentrated mind very quickly falls into sweet oblivion. Yeah. Sleep. Because <laughs> that's, that's what happens when the mind's nicely concentrated. It's calm. And off you go. The passive quality of equanimity, that's so difficult for us. In this sense, it's coming from a position of don't know. Which means that you're, 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 you're looking at something, investigating something, without any preconceived ideas, preconceived notions, that this has to be this way. Very difficult because on one side we're being fed these three characteristics and then we're told, just look. Forget about that. Just look and see for yourself. And there's no prejudice in the sense that the heart isn't involved in any over-desire. It's a calm heart. See. All these factors we've talked about are natural to daily life. Everybody has these. What turns them into factors that lead to liberation is the investigation of the Dharma. So these same factors would be, so we say, anybody say involved in science or some active research. They're all the same sort of qualities that you need. Okay? But once you turn all that to investigating the Dharma, which here it is, these three characteristics, then this leads to a change in the way that we relate to the world we live in. All that is within the this this uh, discourse. You see, this is what he taught lay people. Okay. And uh, just as a, a little aside about the Mahasi, whose picture you see here. After the Second World War, uh, when Burma gained independence uh, from us, oh pity, uh, they. <laughs> They, uh, who knew the elected uh, prime minister, the only one, unfortunately, because uh, in '63 there was the military coup, which they're still suffering from. Uh, and a group of people were looking for a meditation teacher. And the Mahasi was a sort of well-known teacher up in Middle Burma, and they brought him down and set him up in a meditation centre. And. Uh, by all tales, a, a virtual immediate success. He had, he had, he was teaching this. He wasn't teaching jhana and absorption, for which you need time. He was teaching a direct path. It's ekayana, and he 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 sort of created the parameters whereby people could move uh, quickly. So it was great effort, as you know. It's sitting, walking, sitting, walking, eighteen hours a day. But. 
It was never to try and attain something. It was always trying to relax and to watch and to see, to explore. So his uh, his effect on uh, the local society in Rangoon was was immediate. And eventually, uh, you know, it expanded so much that by '56, which is not many years after, he's doing his first world tour around the east. Uh, he didn't come west, I don't think, for a while. But So that's the specific place that the Mahasi holds in the Vipassana scene, you might say, that he teaches this Ekkayanamaka, this direct path. So there we have it. What makes him uh, an especially um, great person in the history of in the spiritual history wasn't uh, just simply the amazing insight that he had, but his also his amazing ability to get it across, the Buddha, to actually produce a systematic way and a systematic teaching, which. Uh, people could understand and not just the intellectuals this is the point ordinary people people of Kuru Zadama. so I can only hope my words have been of some assistance may you be liberated from all your suffering sooner rather than later Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.